0: If you do not apologize, if you are not ashamed, if you are proud of your country and you fight for it, you can achieve great things, even at that glass building on First Avenue.
1: Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 35 for December 12, 2017. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at The Washington Institute. That was Ambassador Dan Gillerman, Israel's permanent representative to the United Nations from 2003 to 2008, speaking on the challenges and opportunities of representing Israel at the world's leading multilateral forum. On December 5th, the Washington Institute honored Gillerman and two of his fellow Israeli ambassadors who fought for justice and fairness at the United Nations, Dore Gold and Ron Prosser. The annual Scholar Statesman Award ceremony held in New York City took place on the eve of the 70th anniversary of the ratification of the UN's partition plan for Palestine. Institute Executive Director Robert Satloff led a lively conversation with Ambassadors Gold, Gillerman, and Prosser about Israel's relationship with the world body, institutional bias against the Jewish state, and prospects for leveraging improved bilateral ties to create opportunities for Israeli interests in multilateral forums. You'll hear their full exchange after this.
2: This is Lori Plotkin-Bogart, K-Family Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute.
1: The first voice you'll hear will be Institute Executive Director Robert Satloff, who moderated the conversation, followed by Ambassador Dore Gold, then Ambassador Dan Gillerman, and then Ambassador Ron Prosser.
3: Friends, we're here because tomorrow is the 70th anniversary of the Partition Resolution. There was clearly a time when the United Nations was important, essential, crucial for Israel. So let's just begin with the basic question.
2: Is the United Nations important to Israel today, Dory? First, understand what the United Nations did and what the United Nations didn't do. What the United Nations did back in 1947 was it provided yet another source of legitimacy for the establishment of a Jewish state. That might have begun with Balfour, it continued with the mandate, but then, with the partition plan, we had the legitimate basis for going forward. But in contrast to what most people believe, that resolution... 181 of the General Assembly, did not create the State of Israel. What created the State of Israel was the determination and the declaration of our first Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion, who declared independence. A declaration of independence creates states, not a non-binding UN General Assembly resolution. Okay. So, that explains
3: what happened 70 years ago. So, Dan, would you say that the UN has any importance
0: for Israel today? Well, first of all, let me just start with a word of thanks and a a warning. First of all, thank you to the Washington Institute. Being honored by such an illustrious and important and effective institute is very meaningful, and uh, I'm very honored. I'm also honored to share it with my two great colleagues. Uh, A warning, and you have three Israelis on stage. Uh-oh. you'll hear three different opinions. But that shouldn't surprise the New Yorkers who have seen the signs in New York hospitals which say that Jewish patients should bring their second opinion first.
3: <laughs>
0: now to your, to your question. You know, when, I, when I, I was appointed by Shimon Peres, who was foreign minister, and Arik Sharon, who was prime minister, and Arik Sharon told me that He's sending me to a very vicious place where I will be lonely, persecuted, and uh, it's a terrible, terrible place to be in. A few weeks after I arrived, I called Sharon. I spoke to him every, uh, every week, and I said to him, I have two things to tell you. One, I'm enjoying every minute of it. Two, every day, each and every day, when I walk the halls of the United Nations, I walk with my head held up high, because I know I represent a country that is far better than most other members of the United Nations. And I don't think there's another arena in the world which enables an Israeli representative or an Israeli diplomat to bring that message to 193 countries of what a country Israel really is, how different it is in reality to the perception its beauty, its creativity, its innovation, its compassion, its contribution to the world. And just as one example, I was fortunate enough, together with my great team, to pass the first ever uh, Israeli-supported resolution, which commemorated January 27th as International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Who was the general director? The general director of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs who supported me greatly, was Ron Prosser, And it was, there is nowhere else, since then, since then, this has been commemorated and remembered all over the world. I don't think there's another place where this could have happened. So it means, if you do not apologize, if you are not ashamed, if you are proud of your country and you fight for it, you can achieve great things, even at that glass building on First Avenue. Ron, what was your greatest achievement
3: as uh, Israel's representative at the UN? Before the
4: achievement, the, you asked the question which is really important, and the voice, that Israel has a voice in the family of nations. And by passing, you saw you know, this film talking about this being a battlefield. And today especially is a wonderful occasion to basically, for us three, to acknowledge the amazing work that was done in creating that resolution by people who really worked around the clock, which means that each and every one of us here can make a difference. This was Thanksgiving. It was the 26th of November when suddenly they found out there were no votes. We didn't have the 60% needed to get the majority. So what did the guys do? under the command of Sharet, who was in New York, sent out to New York to really be the CEO of this operation. What they did was filibuster until they got the votes. And how did they get the votes? This is amazing work. Because 3310, and we know the numbers, but what happened behind the scenes in order to get the 60% in those two days was amazing. So you had stories of double-gun coin was Double Gun Cohen. Double Gun Cohen was a British Jew who went to Canada, met the first then president of China, who was the highly, highest decorated Jew in the Chinese army, and basically was the one in between Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong that created the situation where China abstained. And you had the... Missing Prince. Who was the Missing Prince? Ah, the Missing Prince was this Thai ambassador here to the United Nations that was put on the Queen Mary on the way to Thailand and by coincidence just didn't make it to the vote. Okay? And you had, you had Mr. Firestone. Mr. Firestone, every time you drive a car and you use Firestone, you know, uh, Tires. Tires. Firestone, this Firestone had whole Liberia in his arms and basically forced Liberia to vote for Israel. So in the sense, you had amazing stories behind that that created what we see today, which is absolutely amazing. And the message here... Is that the you know, Jews
3: controlled the world. Thank you very much. No,
4: no. <laughs> and I'll tell, you, I'll tell you my story without using you know, a name. Here is Pablo, okay? Pablo is the ambassador of one of the South American countries, okay? So I go to Pablo and say, hey, Pablo, are you with us on this vote? He says, absolutely. Are you going to vote for us? He says, absolutely not. I said, what do you mean? He said, look, the Arabs are threatening us. What do we do, Pablo? I look at him, and he looks at me, and I say, Pablo, I think you're beginning to catch the flu. So he says, <laughs> maybe I won't be able to attend the vote tomorrow. And the last story is that This is breaking news for the Washington Institute. I've never told this story before, you know? The same story with the Seychelles mission. The Seychelles mission is very small, only three people in the Seychelles mission. One was on the way to Seychelles, and the two others basically couldn't make the vote because they were off to Washington. So what do you do? I was, by vote of proxy, the ambassador of Seychelles for one day. (laughs) So, what I want to say, the bottom line is creativity, working around the clock to make things happen. This is not just blah, blah. Those guys out there created the vote that enabled the establishment of the state of Israel, with, of course, the caveat that uh, Dory mentioned.
3: Okay. Very good. Thank you. Welcome. <laughs> All right. Dory, let me ask you. When you look back, what was your single greatest achievement as UN ambassador for the State of Israel?
2: The single greatest, I can't speak about. It. That's a good one, Dorn. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but the uh, the UN missions of Israel have contacts with many countries with whom we don't have diplomatic relations, and we work behind the scenes. We also have. Uh, contacts with specialized U.N. agencies that are sometimes involved in some of the most sensitive areas of our national security. And I think although I gave speeches on issues related to Israel's legitimacy, and and that's how I was mostly known, it's that kind of background work that was most critical to Israel's security and which gave me the greatest satisfaction. Sorry, I can't expand on it further. Okay.
3: Dan, how would you answer the question? Single greatest achievement.
0: Well, I I think the single greatest achievement was indeed the uh, passing of the International Holocaust Remembrance Resolution. It It passed unanimously. It was the first time ever this disorganization which was born on the ashes of the Holocaust and the ruins of the Second World War actually acknowledged the Holocaust. And uh, I think that was my and my mission's greatest achievement. But beyond that, I think also being elected uh, vice president of the General Assembly, uh, that was in 2005, uh, the previous Vice President was Abba Ibn in 1952. Uh, so I think being elected and recognized uh, by my colleagues was also a great achievement, and just to cap it, I mean, there was also the negotiations on Resolution 1701, which put an end to the Lebanon, Second Lebanon War, where we worked very hard together with our great American colleagues, and especially John Bolton, who you saw on screen. But to add to all that, I have to really defer to what uh, Dori said. I think that the, one of the greatest opportunities the United Nations presents an Israeli ambassador is the behind-the-scenes relations, dialogue, and discussions with ambassadors who represent countries that are not, do not, not only do not recognize us, but are perceived as hostile to us. Uh-huh. And uh, the United Nations presents a great opportunity also because most countries, with the exception of Israel, send their best people, the most senior people, to the United <laughs> Nations, present company excluded. But truly, I mean, uh, during my term, and I'm sure this is true also for Dorian, and for Ron, 14 of my colleagues who then became foreign ministers or secretaries of state, including Sergei Lavrov, who is still there, including Ahmed Abulgate of Egypt, including Muhammad Jawad Zarif, who was the Uh Iranian ambassador and is now their foreign minister and chief negotiator. Now the relations you form with these people and many others can bring dividends to your country, which far outweigh any vote at the United Nations, any... any, uh, Session of the Are you day.
3: announcing tonight that you
0: had special relations with uh, Zarif? I'll, I'll tell you a quick story about Mohammad Jawad Zarif. Uh, first of all, when when I heard that he was uh, that he became foreign minister and is negotiating the deal, I knew we were in trouble. The guy is charming, intelligent, a great negotiator. Uh, and uh, I knew we were in trouble. But it's very interesting, and Dory and Ron will attest to that. At the United Nations, you are seated alphabetically. So Israel is seated practically next to Iran. And for the first two years, we used to pass each other, and I had really very close relations with every ambassador except two, the Syrian and the Iranian. And Mohammad Rawat Zarif wouldn't even acknowledge me. I... Uh, After about two years, we we, we exchanged smiles, and at a certain point, we even had some discussions in the corridor, whereupon one of his colleagues saw him smiling at me, and he was recalled to Tehran (laughs) for three months for being, and I quote, too nice to the Israeli ambassador. (laughs) This, This prompts a question. Ron, let me ask you you
3: hear two very different arguments. One argument is that the UN sounds for Israel like that children's book. It's a horrible, terrible, no good, very bad day, (laughs) every day. But on the other hand, you also hear stories, Israel is making huge inroads with the Africans, with the Asians, with the Latin Americans, basically with everybody except with the Europeans. So which is it? Are both true?
4: Yes, what you have is a whole different world, which is very true of parliaments. Basically, you see what you have above the radar screen and under the radar screen. And this is a whole different world, uh, which is, at the United Nations, amazing. So the Germans would say, kuss mich nicht unter den Linden. We don't have to kiss each other in the middle of the... But the General Assembly in New York itself is a place where you really can connect and meet uh, countries that Israel does not have diplomatic ties with. So there's amazing things that are done under the radar screen. And on this, for me, it was always to find the ways to really connect them uh, to this organization, which in essence is structurally and institutionally biased against Israel on issues that we all should be very concerned on because it's not only that you don't have Israelis at any senior positions at the UN. So you have from Yemen, from Libya, from no Israeli at the senior levels, not even one. You have a situation where Israel was not part of any regional group until the year 2000. We're part of the you know, amazing country club called the West European and Others Group. Which is all of Europe, Australia, New Zealand, the uh, uh, United States, Canada, and Israel. And we are not in the West European and others group in other places in New York. Just lately we made it to Geneva. Why? In Hebrew there's a wonderful word called kacha. Uh, you have Article 4, you know, that talks about human rights violations all over the world, and a specific article singling out only Israel. Now, the so called like-minded countries, the Europeans, don't really have a good answer to give you because it's so structurally biased and most people don't know that. And what you see today, and you see it, you saw it with Samantha, you saw it with Nikki that basically comes out and says it clearly. You come in there and say, my God, this can't be true. We can't have the Saudis chairing the conference on the status of women. We can't have the Iranians, you know, Heading the Non-Proliferation Committee. I mean, this is absolutely... I couldn't invent this stuff. So, under the radar screen, you have amazing relationships, both in Africa, in South America. And I have to tell you, it's and and Dan and Dory had the same experience. When, you know, the guard from Ahiti comes over to me before a speech at the General Assembly and says, Ambassador... With tears in his eyes, you saved my mother and my brother and another cousin with the amazing aid that Israel gave a, a Haiti. You know, it comes and connects at the end of the day, it connects people to people. And Israel and all of you can be really, really proud. Sends amazing people in all dimensions in disabilities and sustainable development. I'm leaving politics out. So like Danny, what I really think is one of the biggest achievements is this organization is really good, the UN, in, you know, honoring dead Jews. That's good. So I try to focus on the living Jews, on basically running a resolution on agricultural technologies on entrepreneurship for development and we had a year and a half of work 141 countries raised their hand for an Israeli resolution and the ambassador of Tanzania approaches the podium and says I have a lot to say about what israel does in Africa is absolutely amazing and he really jumped and hugged them on stage so The Under the radar screen, Israel is doing a lot of inroads to countries that appreciate the amazing work that we are doing. And we should continue that. And this is a credit card that we have absolutely used to the end. We should put in much more stuff because this is part of Tikkun Olam. Okay. Thank
3: you. Dory, I know that you've been very active in dealing with uh, countries with whom Israel doesn't have relations. Um, uh, uh, do you think that there's a lot more to be done in that world? Um, do you think that we're just at the uh, um, uh, the beginning of a new, new, new Middle East, or is there not nearly as much of this that uh, that we tend to exaggerate?
2: First of all, I think a fundamental distinction has to be drawn. When you talk about Israel's diplomacy overseas, there are our bilateral relations. Israel vis-a-vis each individual country in the world. And those are blossoming. In fact, I think we're having a renaissance right now in terms of how Israel is operating in the Pacific East, in Africa, in Latin America, and just basically worldwide, even with the Europeans who tend to come up with sort of bad ideas when they work together in Brussels, on individual level, it's extraordinary. And I can give story after story. The problem is, once you take these extraordinarily good relations and you put them in a multilateral framework, the dynamics of countries working together works against us. Now, we're beginning to change that. I think the last 10 years have been new inroads on these bilateral ties. I think in the next 10 years, we should try, we should struggle to translate that into new voting patterns in the United Nations. And I think it's doable. Uh, But remember, draw a fundamental distinction between how Israel is doing with these new countries and how Israel is doing in a multilateral setting. Because in a multilateral setting it's very difficult. And in fact, countries will admit that to you. I remember back in 1998, uh, the Indian ambassador mm-hmm. saying to him, well, we're going to have to vote against you. And I said, why? So, well, you know, it doesn't really matter, these votes at the UN. What's important is our bilateral ties, you know, where uh, the IDF and the Indian Army are, are working together. So again, that's a distinction you should keep in mind. You will see vast improvements in our ties with countries around the world on a one-to-one basis. But at the UN, when they all get together, there is a dynamic working against the state of Israel. We've all struggled with it. And um, I think eventually the voting patterns will change.
3: All right. I want to ask you guys about America and the UN. And to do that, I'm going to first quote Abba Eben. Um, who I think deserves to be quoted in an evening like tonight. He said, quote, The Soviet Union was either for you or against you. If they were for you, they were for you 100%. If they were against you, they were against you 100%. The United States always had a plurality in their objectives. So they were never 100% for you, and they were never 100% against you. This is the key line said Abba Ibn, nobody could completely trust them and nobody could completely despair of them. So let me ask you, gentlemen, during your years of service, did that last phrase, nobody could completely trust the United States and nobody could completely despair of them, did that apply to your experience? Dan.
0: Well, I, I had the privilege and a very interesting experience of serving with four American ambassadors. I was at the UN for nearly six years. In those six years, I served with John Ponte, Jack Danforth, John Bolton, and Zalmay Khalilzad, two of whom we just saw on the screen. And uh, I must say that I trusted all of them completely. We had a very good relation and we, we actually cooperated way beyond what would be expected, even of allies. And, and one of the examples I can give you is that, and, you know, I'm not divulging any secret now because Condoleezza Rice, uh, says it in her memoirs and actually accuses me and John Bolton of undermining her foreign policy. Uh, because as we were negotiating Resolution 1701, which put an end to the Second Lebanon War, uh, the, there was a draft which was on its way to Prime Minister Olmert, uh, which would be presented to him as the, the resolution which should be adopted at the UN. And at probably three o- 8 o'clock in the evening, John Bolton called me and said, listen, you have to call your Prime Minister because Condi Rice has sold you out to the French. At that time, the French were sort of working for the Lebanese, and the Americans were representing us in the negotiations. Uh, I did that, and I woke Erdogan up at 3 or 4 in the morning Israel time. Uh, Now, the reason I mention that is because when you say the United States, you have to make a very clear distinction, and I'm sure, again, that both Dory and Ron may attest to that, between the White House and the State Department. I'll say it with great caution, because, you know, this is, uh, although it will stay in the mishpucha at the end of the day. (laughs) As far as the State Department is concerned, even with the friendliest presidents to Israel, and I think, for example, George W. Bush was probably one of the most compassionate and friendliest Presidents that Israel has ever had. The State Department wasn't completely there. And I can divulge today that I had numerous meetings with Elliot Abrams, who came to my residence, to my home in New York, without the knowledge of his UN mission and without the knowledge even of my UN mission, where we worked together with the National Security Council to block uh, steps which were going to be taken by the State Department. But on the whole, I think, not I think, I state uh, very clearly Israel has no better friend than the United States. Israel trusts the United States. And uh, regardless of whether it's a Republican or Democratic organization, we feel that we have the support of the American people, of the American Congress the American Senate, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I still remember having a very, very close relationship with Tom Lantosh, who was the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, at the risk of being politically incorrect, especially during these very delicate times, Tom Lantosh, at the age of about 79, told me that he changed the name of the committee from Foreign Relations to Foreign Affairs And that the only reason the Senate didn't do that because the senators were too old to have affairs. (laughs) Now, no more comment. But, you know, we I think that in the world in general and at the United Nations especially, I at least could always count on the United Nations as a great friend, as a great ally. United States. United States. As a great ally, a great friend, and a great partner.
3: Okay, very good. So, Ron, 100% reliance on the United States? Never once did you worry that they were selling you out to somebody else?
4: Okay, first sentence. All the stories that myself, Dan, and uh, Dory can tell you of valor and courage without the United States of America, Israel would be chopped liver at this organization called the United Nations. So basically, we rely completely. There's no other relationship, you know, pivot to the east, pivot to the west, pivot anywhere. The United States is really the anchor. Having said that, uh, you know, I had the uh, amazing experience, and it was a good experience of working with... Both Susan Rice and Samantha Power, both strong women, passionate, emotional. And I would say that uh, there are a lot of, not a lot, uh, many times where they're deviating national interests, okay? So it's easier for me to go down quickly and tell you in the establishment of the State of Israel, you know, uh, everyone, And the State Department was against uh, Ben-Gurion calling for the establishment of the State of Israel. 1967, preemptive strike, Johnson said Israel will not be alone if it does not act alone. Israel did it. When we went after the atomic reactor in Osirak, basically I served in Washington afterwards and heard, you know, Vice President Cheney go over to David Ivory and say, I'm sorry. Okay, so the U.S. basically... (laughs) And you can go down to from foreign sources. We know, you know, of a certain uh, nuclear facility that was taken out of order, where the United States of America under Bush and Condi Rice weren't really uh, with us on this. And those issues will always be there. There are going to be different decisions on national security interests and the Prime Minister of the State of Israel has to really look after that, even if it deviates from the great friend for the United States of America. That is the case on different issues at the UN when the United States has different interests. Uh, so it's not, you know, completely 100%, but like I said, there's no better friend. And, Coming back to Dory, because I think he made a very good point on the difference between bilateral relations and voting patterns at the UN, and I want to pivot to the same ambassador of India, a different one with me, that loves Israel, okay? And after this so-called operation that happened in Syria on this nuclear facility, he went to me and said, Ron, amazing work. You should really, you, should, you showed them, and that's... And then he goes over to the security council and says... We absolutely condemn the Israeli operation. Tika-taki-taka-taka-taka. What? We are non-aligned? What can I do? We are non-aligned. So you had this, always, this issue of the bilateral issues, which are amazing, and then the voting patterns at the UN. And like Dan, you know, he talked about the eyes at the UN. So on Israel's right is always Italy. Headed at my time by the ambassador Cesare Regalini. When I came in, he said to me, Ron, you can rely on me, you can rely on Italy, you can rely on the Forza Italia. I told him, Cesare, if I have to rely on you, I'm in deep. <laughs> on the left is Ireland. Afterwards, Iraq and Iran. And like Dan said, you know, I always went with the Iranian ambassador who took two steps because seen with me, it would be hanging in the middle of Tehran. So it was. You had this always, you know, this amazing interaction, which you don't have anywhere
3: else. Gentlemen, I want to ask you very briefly a couple of uh, quick questions, and so a few quick answers. Should the UN play any role in Arab-Israeli peacemaking today, Dory? Absolutely not. Dan?
0: In three words, absolutely, absolutely not.
3: Ron? No. No. Um, One hears a lot of talk about UNRWA, the UN Relief and Works Agency. What's your preference? Fix UNRWA or scrap UNRWA? Ron.
4: Amazing issue. Merge UNRWA with UNHCR, change UN, the, UN uh, United High Commissioner, Commissioner for Refugees. Yes. Quick, short explanation. UNRWA, the only, the only, the Palestinians have their own refugee organization, that basically perpetuates the issue of the Palestinian refugees so peace would not be achievable merge them with UNHCR and change the mandate you keep that organization with refugees in a more efficient way and efficiency at the UN i know is a contradiction in terms
3: okay so so basically fix it fix, fix it. it by just yes. fix it then
0: I, I agree. I think that UNRWA needs a lot of fixing. Certainly the uh, United Nations, uh, the High Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, who, by the way, was my colleague at the UN. Uh, he's a Jordanian prince. His uh, father and uh, was the brother of King Hussein's father, and uh, he was a very, very great friend of Israel. Uh his name is Prince Zaid Rad Al Hussein. He had the longest title in the UN. It was uh his Royal Highness, Prince Zayd al Hussein, Ambassador Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary, Permanent Representative of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan to the United Nations. All that on one business card. But you know, to give him credit, he was a great friend and uh he's today the High Commissioner. And I think that if we joined forces, as Ron said, between UNRWA and his organization, and maybe we could get a a less monstrous creature. Less monstrous. Dori? You cannot
2: resolve the Palestinian issue if you create a construct that says Palestinian refugee status is in perpetuity. That is what UNRWA does. That has to be completely revised, in fact disbanded and replaced with something much closer uh, to the UNHCR. Repeal and
3: replace, I've heard that. Okay, very good. One one last quick question. Uh, Israel is pulling out of UNESCO following the American lead. At the same time, Israelis are making progress in some specialized agencies. There's an Israeli right now who's the uh, director of and a, a branch chief of counterterrorism at the UN. Uh, can Israel really pick and choose like this? Which to be part, which not to be part, play or not to play? Or do you have to be all in um, to try to get the most you can out of the organization? Dory.
2: Look, for years, the UN has tried to get Israel's specialization in certain fields. You know, the... Um, UN resolution adopted at the end of the First Gulf War uh, called on all member nations to help with the um monitoring of Iraq's weapons of mass destruction. All countries were supposed to help with that. And of course the UN could have used Israeli knowledge. So that is something that, you know, we're experienced with. They're seeking us out. But you mentioned UNESCO, and I have to say something about UNESCO that UNESCO has committed a crime against the state of Israel for renouncing, for failing to acknowledge the connection of the Jewish people to Jerusalem, considering the overwhelming archaeological evidence that can be marshaled, is something that is unforgivable. And uh, I don't think if somebody needs our technical advice on monitoring a nuclear program someplace in Asia... But that somehow clears the air for what UNESCO has done.
3: Okay, very good. Dan? Uh, Sure.
0: I'm against boycotts, period. I'm certainly against the boycotting of Israel, which I think is a self-destructive move of anyone who wants to do it. And by the way, Israel has never enjoyed more uh, popularity more uh, visits from foreign leaders, or even from artists. I mean, this audience—if if you have trouble getting tickets for Jerry Seinfeld or for Chris Rock—they're coming to Israel in December and January. A day doesn't go by that artists, musicians, and uh, you know, foreign leaders come to Israel and realize how amazing it truly is. And because I'm against boycotting, I'm also—I I do not favor Israel. Uh, leaving any world organization okay including unesco i'm very uh, I, I agree with every word dory said but there's two reasons i think we should stay a we should be there and fight at the end of the day we've won fights we will win fights we are Right, we are moral, we are creative, we are innovative, we are compassionate. We are a country that makes deserts bloom with our our agriculture and diseases disappear with our medicine. We make the world a better place each and every day with our research and development and even a richer place with our culture and our art, which is part of what UNESCO is about. The second thing is that a very impressive young lady by the name of Audrey Azoulay has just been elected as secretary or director general of UNESCO. She's Jewish. She's the daughter of Andre Azoulay and his wife, uh, who are uh, Moroccan Jews, very close to the King of Morocco and great supporters of Israel and on the board of the Paris Center for Peace. I think we should give her a chance. And I, I'm not, I don't think this would be a surprise to anyone if at the end of the day, because this is only supposed to happen at the end of next year, neither the U.S. nor Israel will leave UNESCO. Interesting. Okay, Ron, very quickly.
4: The analysis, Rob, should be very cold. It should be participating in an organization. Can you really influence and create change? Uh, On UNESCO in the past years, the balancing and the calibration has turned in a way that you are legitimizing an organization that at the end of the day delegitimizes the core elements on which the state of Israel and the Jewish people stand on. There are certain lines that if they are crossed, you have to have a voice and basically say, guys, that's it. UNESCO has reached that stage. It took them a while, but they really made a huge effort in reaching this level. So from my point of view, the issue of UNESCO is clear. In Israel, there's a certain line where you become a punching bag and you legitimize people who legitimize you. The minute you pull out... They you. Yes, the minute you pull out you basically create a situation where everyone says, hey, look at those guys. It's like something, you know, like on the Council on Human Rights headed by Jeffersonian democracies like Libya and Syria. I mean, this is like having Charles Manson run the crime investigation squad of the NYPD. I mean, there's, you know, there's chutzpah and there's chutzpah here. Okay? So they have reached that level. And the last point that I want to say, which I felt and I think... Dan and Doy also, you know, every day when I came to the United Nations and I saw 193 flags out there, I saw 25 flags with a cross on them. I saw 15 flags with a crescent on them. I only saw one flag with a vid, And this flag, we all should be working every day to make sure that this flag hangs tall and proud in the family of nations
3: where it belongs. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in congratulating three exemplary diplomats on behalf of the State of Israel. Ron Prosor, Dan Gillerman, and Dori Gold.
1: This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at washingtoninstitute.org, follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute, and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers.